Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Time now for the Yahoo Sports College Podcast with Dan Wetzel. This sport is garbage. This thing is a burning pile of garbage, this sport. (laughs) (laughs) I'm fine with that. Pete Thamel. Do you just picture like a big steak on his desk, a big glass of milk, and then the contract next to it? That's what I picture. And SI's Pat Forty. We're paying $24 million to get rid of this guy because he ain't getting us to the championship. And we're going to pay $20 million to bring in the next guy. Woo! Hook him! I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Here's Pat, Pete, and Dan. Hi, welcome to the pod. Happy New Year to everybody. 2021. Can't make 2020 jokes anymore. 2021, you know, everything's changed. Feels much better now. All's good. <laughs> yeah. We're cured. All's good. Everything. <laughs> People are really celebrating getting rid of 2020. I'm like, it's 1159 when 1201 hits. Yeah. Anyway, uh, here we are. We're going to do a pod later in the week focused more on the championship game. We do have Missouri coach Eli Drinkwitz on the program today, though. Talk to Pete about uh, the matchup. Really good breakdown of the game. Plus, uh, he's got a we have some. Let's just say Pat Forty related questions. The oh, Missouri boy. coach Pat Forty related questions. A plus. I haven't eight. heard this yet, and I'm I'm and approaching with great wariness. We're gonna get to that. <laughs> yeah. Plus, uh, a hysterical uh, story about coaching against Trevor Lawrence, and uh, a pretty good Nick Saban story. Nick Saban's actually funny, and this is quite an interview, Pete. Your early yeah. Pulitzer Prize candidate. I mean, it's only like the third <laughs> or fourth agent. I don't know who's done better work than you. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I broke like the Rice special teams coach leaving for Memphis in this, so I'm really on, the, I'm really on the fast track. I really think that's where the Pulitzer committee is going to look mm. this year. Is uh, yeah, playoff breakdowns and uh, obscure position coach movement. We're in. This is it's like, all over. Stop the count, Pete wins. Yeah, Pete <laughs> wins. I mean, at least you should go to Shady Gators or something at Lake of the Ozark. <laughs> yeah. We Missouri's got to love us now. Uh, so we'll get all that. We got a lot of stuff, and yes, we are aware of the chicken wars are heating up. Okay. We're going to get to that. There was a there was a someone sent us a, a screenshot of the CNN homepage on Tuesday morning. And the top three things, it said, like, things you need to know, you know, like the quick. And it was Georgia votes for control of the Senate. Uh, something about like the pandemic, uh, the, the vaccine rollout. McDonald's enters chicken wars. Those are the top three. <laughs> See? Control no, of I the government, really an order of importance, ending a pandemic, and yeah, I don't believe they had it right. Yeah, but, no, <laughs> no. 
And I think that we are basically driving the news judgment out there. Who else has been on the more on the front lines of the chicken wars? A lot of mockery of us for focusing on this, but it's clearly now CNN, the worldwide leader in news, mm-hmm. is is backing it up. Is that what their thing is? I don't know what they are. Anyway, um, let's start the with worldwide Texas, follower behind the, the worldwide follower behind the Yahoo podcast. Sports College podcast. Let's start with Texas because Tom Herman got kneecapped out of the blue uh, over the weekend. Steve Sarkeesian was hired. So just like that, it was a great, it was a great one. College sports at its finest. Guy gets fired at like nine and at 11, there's a new coach. It's very <laughs> transparent. Uh, good to post the job. Like think about the highest paid public employee in the entire state of Texas. And there's, there's no, like, that's, is that legal? I don't know. I, <laughs> how do you just hire? They'll worry out the details later, Dan. <laughs> just, we just hired this other guy. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. They haven't. They haven't released the contract details yet. At least I haven't seen them. But can you imagine the negotiating leverage on this that that Sarkeesian had? <laughs> so you're going to do a one man search just to me. You so desperately want to fire your coach. You're going to pay him and his staff twenty four million to go away. Like I don't think Sark's rolling in at three point five million. You know, like I think nope. this is a, this is going to be in the sixth neighborhood. I, I think that you want to talk about a kneecapping. That's what the the, the Texas budget took for this. Yeah. All right. Pat Forty, your thoughts? Oh, it was this was nearly peak College Sports Incorporated, I thought. We all wrote columns about it. I thought you guys both had really interesting things, but I you know, to me this was just college sports never more at odds with itself than right here in this situation where you know, on the one hand you had Chris Del Conte on September first putting out a statement of all the budget cuts they're having to make and the dire financial situation and, you know, phrasing everything in grim terms. And, you know, we're, we are laying off 35 people. We are not filling 35 jobs. We are asking, I, I believe it was 276 people to take a pay cut. Uh, you know, times are really tough here. Fast forward four months. We're paying $24 million to get rid of this guy because he ain't getting us to the championship. And we're going to pay $20 million to bring in the next guy. Woo! Hook him! I mean, <laughs> that's that's the same guy doing those two things, basically. Uh, you know, it, it's and I, I, I will admit to a little bit of naivete. On December 12th, when they put out the statement saying Tom Herman is our coach, to actually thinking they meant it. What they meant <laughs> is... And, and yet, you know, if you go back and look at the statement, it, it was, whoo! I mean, it was there was no enthusiasm. There was no real backing to Herman at all. It was a clear indication we're just saying this to say this because recruiting signing day is five days from now and we don't have anybody else lined up because we didn't get Urban Meyer. So uh, I would say they absolutely 100% owe it to every signee to be let out of their letter of intent and then let them decide whether they want to keep it or not uh, because those guys were signed in bait and switch false pretense. And uh, this is how the sausage gets made. And, hey, as Pete wrote it, is Sark the guy? Is I mean, do you make a $50 million decision for Sark? I I don't know. It's very much wait and see on that point. So Chris Del Conte is on the line on this one. Yeah, the, uh, the, the Del Conte statement to get through signing day puts him in the elite company in terms of cannonballing into the sewer of his friend Ross Bjork at Texas A&M, who openly lied 
to get through signing day to, with the Hugh Freeze stuff was coming down. Basically, oh, nothing's going to happen here. Nothing's going to happen here. So they can uh, those bitter rivals can lock arms in low ethics because that's just like they Crystal kind of got on a Zoom with Texas recruits and basically told them Tom Herman's going to be the coach. So to to go back on that, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's really an astounding thing. If and look. I've known Sark for a long time uh, since he was Pete Carroll's assistant at USC. He's an engaging, likable guy. His comeback story is remarkable to battle alcoholism like he has and to return to the heights where he has gotten. Being the Bros Award winner this year, now getting the Texas job, should be applauded. And I, I want to be very upfront that I really respect the road Sark has taken back because it is a long and difficult road. That said, like you can't say this hire comes without significant risk. I was actually at the USC-Washington game in 2015. I believe it was a Thursday night game, which started Stark spiral. He didn't show up at practice. Again, it's fuzzy. It was five years ago. It was either the next day or the day after. And the USC had pre- open practices at the time. And it was kind of like the beat writers were on watch being like, wait a minute, Sark's not here? Sark's not here? And, and I believe by Monday he was fired. And so Sark had the Texas job. He had a plum underachieving blue blood job that needed to be revived and he squandered it. So I hope for his sake, he can capitalize on this opportunity this time, which he did not do back in 2015. But to say it comes without significant risk would be patently naive. So it's a, it's a, this is like only Texas could have the stakes this high, the risk this high, the intrigue this high. Yeah. It's, it's really, really a, a compelling, compelling set of moves that, that have led to this point. Yeah. This, this is a wild one. You know, it's, it's a little apples and oranges, but it goes back to what we talked about in the last pod about, you know, the, the establishment of college football and lectures on ESPN about the players at a, at a crap bowl game that's designed for just, you know, money grab gambling purposes getting in a fight and that's an outrage against the sport and you go this sport is gar this thing is a burning pile of garbage this sport (laughs) (laughs) i'm fine with that (laughs) i'm not i'm fine with it but you had the athletic director go on and recruit completely you raise the money overnight really like what ethics is that (laughs) Okay, like that's the, and I know these are different schools, but that's ridiculous. Yeah, you post a job, you don't look for the best candidate. You just hire this guy. I hope I. We have no idea. I'm with Pete. Great story if he comes back and does it. Guy might be unbelievable. You never know when you make a hire. Tom Herman had succeeded at the mid major or the. I don't want to say Houston's a mid major, but let's call it whatever. In the state, he'd been the Ohio State AD uh, uh, offense coordinator to win a title. Like this looked like. And it didn't work out. Okay. They did pretty well, but he got paid a lot. So those high stakes. I mean, he lost, he lost this year. But Tom Herman, you got to be a little just crazy right now. He lost three games by two points, by three points, and in quadruple overtime. <laughs> now, yeah. I, that does not mean the Texas program was rolling and a couple bad breaks away from it. But still, you get paid a lot of money, you, you take high risk. So whatever. But to hire this guy, and, and this is what the coaches I talk to, particularly African-American coaches are like, what's the standard of a hire? Here's a guy who didn't do much at Washington. who's given a power five job after being a coordinator. Didn't did it did. Okay. Not really. No, never finished higher than third in the PAC 12 North gets the USC job. Cause he previously worked there. 
kick that away. I had alcoholism. We respect that. But still, the car wash treatment at Alabama. I mean, look, hey, look at this offense he's running. I mean, they they won they, their first two touchdowns against Notre Dame was a screen pass to Devontae Smith, who just ran through everybody, and and a and a and a rush to Najee Harris, who leaped a six foot guy. Was that designed in the play? <laughs> and he gets Let's run high text, hurdle. He gets the Texas job. This is Will Muschamp again. And you're and you're all these other coaches, non-connected coaches, but particularly African-American coaches beating your head against the wall, going, oh, I mean, I don't have a chance. Yeah. I yeah. don't have a chance. And this is college football. So don't ever, I don't don't ever want to get lectured by these people about anything. You guys, yeah. the sport is completely bankrupt of ethics can good things happen absolutely but you guys will stab each other in the back violate all norms completely ridiculous lie to kids lie to parents it, this isn't an, a shady assistant coach it's the athletic director of texas doing this and <laughs> i is, is that leadership in college sports i would think so christelle conti's a good guy but this is what he was doing this is what you got to do in this sport this is cage fighting at least in the USC, we don't get a lot of lectures. At least we don't get Dana White lecturing us about stuff. That's true. You don't. You don't have to hear the words "great integrity." No, uh, you know that sort of thing. The, all that, all the puffery that comes with everything in college sports: commitment to this, integrity that, and now you know that's that's what has always bothered me the most. Is just stop lying to us. Just tell us exactly what it is, and let's let's call all the spades what they are. I hope. I, I I still haven't heard. A we we have not heard the terms of this, and and this goes back to our discussion of how bad businessmen these ads are. Like in in the real world, Steve Sarkeesian, who was making two point five million as the offensive coordinator at Alabama, which is a ton of money. He's the highest paid offensive coordinator in football, college football. And your next job, three million, maybe three five, because you're the head coach, but. Texas shouldn't have to pay more than that, but they will because it's part of the vanity. It's part of the ego. And it's part of also being doubled over by his agent. Who's going to say that no, we need five or six or whatever, because the Texas coach can't make less than that. Can he? He's the Texas coach. I mean, this is all just part of the, the, the business that a is insulting and B isn't poorly run. Well, don't under, don't forget the desperation, which is really the factor there. Like they're going to get, they're going to get taken over the barrel because they are desperate. I would think looking at all the scenarios that we have laid out here, when you really lay the facts to bear, I, I firmly believe, and I've been told this, that this decision was made above Crystal Conte's head because there's just a complete absence of logic in, in how this went down. And I really believe that this was done by the same people at Texas. Now, I'm using metaphoric people because there's different people on the board and there's different boosters. They come in and out. But this is Texas. If you really want to look at how Texas got this place, it's a misaligned place. It was misaligned at the end of Mac Brown. It was misaligned all through Charlie Strong. And now it was, you know, and Tom couldn't outwin the, the lack of alignment. If you want to last at Texas, you have to win big and everyone lines up behind the winning. Tom won medium, maybe medium plus one a year, but very pretty much one medium and nobody got in line. So, I mean, this is the same cluster of people that interviewed Oliver Luck and Steve Patterson for the athletic director job and chose Steve Patterson, arguably <laughs> one of the five worst athletic director hires in the last 20 years. I mean, Steve Patterson was a disaster. There. I don't think it's arguable. 
Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> I won't argue with your inarguable. <laughs> so, uh, and then you you come in on the back door of that, and you just stick Mike Perrin there for two years because it lets the boosters and it lets the board people and it lets the egos and the money run the athletic department. Now, Mike Perrin was a nice man. He played football at Texas. He's a lawyer. He's a smart guy. But he was just sort of like weekend at Bernie's, right? Like he was uh, he was just sort of like the, the 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 stuffed animal that they trotted out as the athletic director. He wasn't actually an athletic director, which is really what the people want. And so there are these huge egos at Texas, and they've had outsized influence in all this. And you can't tell me that those are the like smart athletic director people would be like, you know what? Next year's gonna next year's not gonna be great. Let's ride with Tom Herman, get a clean slate. We can fire him mid-year, run a good search. We're out of a pandemic. We at that point, we're gonna owe oh, that 24 number probably gets, you know, somewhere around, I would say 15, because you knock five off of Herman. And like all of a sudden, the optics are better, the money's better, the field is better. We can run a real search. I mean, you want to talk about racial diversity. You think there was a lot of that, that was really taken into mind in the Texas search, which, you know, essentially. Four minutes after they fired him, like the the the, the successor was named, or, you know that it was uh, that it was going to be Sark. So, I really just think like th- this decision couldn't have been made at the athletic director level. Like it, it had to have. There's there's an absurdity to it that speaks to the egos and the people in charge. There's a board chair at Texas who who has heavy heavy influence, who was who was heavily involved in all this, and I really feel like that's where that's where this had to go that way. Like it's too ridiculous for it to be like the AD sitting around pushing buttons. Well, the AD is not going to be able to just drive this thing all by himself. There's no question. So that's part of being the AD at Texas too. You you got yeah, it right. Yeah. So yeah, I I agree. It's not all. It's obviously not Del Conte. He's just the face guy um, on this. But it goes to two other another thing that we haven't really discussed. I don't want to talk for long, but like this preemptive postseason ban thing these schools are doing now. <laughs> right. LSU, <laughs> we're not going to a bowl in Arizona. We're not going to the NCAA basketball and Auburn. And 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 it's like everybody applauds and goes, Well, the team's not that good this year anyway. And and it's like, you know, these these schools and this this whole thing of college athletics, like you know, it's all about the sacrifice and the team and all. Uh, but but if you're not that good, it doesn't really matter. Well, we'll, we'll you don't just, you know, like these kids are working so hard. They're dealing with COVID protocols. It stinks and they need something to play for. Good. I agree. I agree. Well, we're not that good. So we'll just cut that. Your sacrifice, kid, isn't as good as next year's. We might be a little bit better. And, you know, it's, again, it goes against what they preach and preach and preach and preach. And it's like, he's like, to use the same term, you're kneecapping your own kids. Sure. Why? Go, go. We want to get it out of the way. Well, it's not fair to the kid who's a senior. You know, now, look, I think there's only one guy at Arizona who signed before Book Richardson. I mean, some of these guys, if you signed with these programs, you should have known what was coming. Like, it was, it was well publicized, the, tr- the troubles of the program. But... Yeah. You know, this idea that you're just like, we don't care that much about this team because you're not up to our standards of competitiveness, but we will protect the next team because they do better. That's not how this is supposed to work, but it is just stop, again, stop lying. We're here to serve the student athletes. That's what that's 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 what they're doing. They're, they're in it because they care about the kids, Dan, unless the kids aren't performing that well and in the middle of the season, we want to go ahead and self-impose, then we will. That's the whole thing. Like, if you want to self-impose, and and your point is right, that uh, it's hard to feel 
incredibly sorry for all the kids that signed with, you know, when, when there were warning lights flashing for years around the program and you still signed with them, you kind of get what you signed up for. However, when you start a season and then you decide, ah, nah, never mind. Let's pull the plug now. <laughs> That's garbage. That is really garbage. You know, that, a self-imposed ban, I think, should only be accepted and acceptable if you do it before the season starts and the players on the team have a chance to transfer or opt out or whatever the case may be. Well, the the king hypocrisy of all this is LSU, whose basketball oh. program is like the searing, burning dumpster fire that defines that sport right now. They don't they don't. Well, they're pretty good, though. So they're mm-hmm. not going to they're not going to put the basketball program on postseason because they might actually make it. But football, they went, you know, three and whatever. Okay, well, yeah, yeah, you football, you can go. Like, like, do you think like anybody sat in the room there and was like, do you wonder how this looks? And quite frankly, how did nobody in the media in the state of Louisiana call them out on that? I mean, it is the most mockable thing of all time. But it's, it's just unbelievable. Like, there were like, three oh, and five. Smart. There were three and five. Players were opting out. And nobody yeah. wanted this. Everybody just wanted the season to end. Well, let's yeah. let's go ahead and end it by, yes. not, by not taking a bowl. And then look how seriously we're taking this situation. I, and to credit of, of LSU, they turned that season around. And they ended up yeah, five, they ended and five, five and five. I mean, they, those kids were playing hard and what was left. But whatever. Yeah, yeah it's, it just goes to the it, uh, this is a well-worn topic. All right. Here's two schools. Uh, we're not we could be done with the coaching carousel in, in the major programs at this point, or we could not. As we talk right now. Uh, Jim Harbaugh has had a contract sitting on his desk for five days, hasn't signed it. Now, he could be signing it at this very second. So I don't, you know, what are you going to do? But hadn't signed it. Do you just picture like a big steak on his desk, a big glass of milk, <laughs> and then the contract next to it? That's what I picture when I picture Jim Harbaugh's desk. I found it interesting that, you know, Michigan is basically not being Texas and overreacting and basically saying, look, we're going to, this guy's a good coach. He's done a pretty good job. We're just going to ride this out. Let's see what he can do next year. It's a little more of a, a you know, because if you hire the wrong coach, all you do is set yourself back four years again. So, you know, they're, they're, they're doing that approach. Okay, fine. I, whatever approach. But you can see why some of these fans are like, we don't really want you. I mean, there's a segment of the fan base is like, please leave or we should fire Jim Harbaugh. And then there's like, well, all right, we're going to give you an extension. And now you're going to sit there and go, let's see how this NFL thing shakes out. You know, like maybe the Jets get desperate after all. What's the proper fan reaction to Jim Harbaugh, you know, playing footsie with whatever, who's looking for someone to play footsie with, I think, under the table. It's over the table. I don't even think it's a secret. He does want an NFL job. And he has been actively seeking, hoping, wishing you know, reaching his foot under the table. There's no foot who wants to meet his foot to play footsie. That's the problem. He is he is a lonely, lonely twister player right now on the board by himself, searching for someone to to match his foot. And that's just the reality of who Jim Har- Jim Harbaugh is and who he's become. And the pure coaching Jim Harbaugh, there's a lot of good there. But I think the weirdness of Jim Harbaugh and just like it feels like the fire isn't lit there like it like it once was. It certainly isn't on the recruiting trail when you see the talent that they've trotted out there. But it's a case where I think these billionaire owners who desperately want the Jim Harbaugh who won 69% of his games when he was at the 49ers. And I want, what did he go to, Dan? The NFC title game three or four years? Three or four. Three straight. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And then the so that's one Super Bowl of, in there. Yeah. That's a Hall of Fame tract, right? Like there's unquestionable Hall of Fame tract, like a first ballot Hall of Fame tract. 
there aren't a lot of humans on earth who have coached National Football League that well. But I just think Jim Harbaugh, the way he wears on people, the way he treated people in San Francisco, the way he left has made him unhirable at that level. Boy, and you know, I'll say, so here's the question. And Dan, your column was great where you compared and contrasted basically the similar situations, Texas and Michigan. So Texas absolutely pulls the trap door, you know, with no compunction. Michigan, okay, we're going to give you every chance. How long do they want to sit here while that extension's on the desk before you start feeling like, look, we could have fired you, maybe even should have fired you. Instead, we want to extend you, and you're slow playing us. I'd be, if I were Ward Manuel, I'd be, I'd be pretty unhappy right now. I don't know what your alternatives are, but I would not be very happy that Jim Harbaugh has set let that contract sit there. And yeah, if Harbaugh is waiting to see what's going to happen. I mean, there there are several wild card individuals involved in things here. You know, Urban Meyer. Not the most predictable person in the world. Jim Harbaugh, not the most predictable person in the world. And everybody's kind of waiting to see how the job cycles are, are going to end up everywhere. And I, I don't know. I, I would, if, if I'm Harbaugh, I would sure hope my at least my lines of communication are good with uh, Ward Manuel because I, I, I would think that he would be – his patience would be dwindling at this point. Yeah, I mean, he's showing up. He's showing up, Michigan. Uh, and yeah. that, that's the mood, you know, in Detroit. It's a big story. It's a huge story in Detroit. I mean, it's like this guy, all right, we're going to give you a second chance. And instead of being like, thank you, thank you, thank you, I'm going to work my ass off. I'm currently grinding film 18 hours a day and, and, and reviewing the, you know, the footwork of our of our second string tight end because we're going to improve everything. Right. That's what you want. If you're sitting there saying we're going to keep you after two and four season. And our damn arch rival looks like they're going to win another national title, maybe. And, you know, this isn't going well. And instead, it's like. Yeah, I'll get around to it. And the, the problem for Harbaugh, he's not a first-tier candidate in the NFL right now. He has to wait to see where Robert Sala goes. He has to wait and see where, where Eric Bieniemy goes. He has to wait and see where Urban Meyer goes. He has to if he gets a job, it's the because a bunch of stuff didn't work out. And then all of a sudden, he gets a job. He, he ends up with a charger job because four other candidates didn't happen. That That's his only way, which could take another week, 10. Like, that's, it's not... I'll make a decision Monday. Look, if Eric Bieniemy wants to return or go, he'll he'll know in a couple of days. He's gonna have a really he's the he's the bell of the ball right now. Urban obviously had that, but so he's showing him up. That's it. All right. The other one is Dan Mullen at Florida. Now Dan Mullen, I don't think he's done anything wrong here. He's just people are throwing him out there. Could he go to the NFL? There's a lot of Florida fans that are like, wait, wait, what? You know, like you're not you didn't finish your job here. I. There's there's definitely some tension on that. I don't think they're mad. They want him back. Some people, you know, people want to win. So he's won, but not he hasn't won one. Right? He's a really one. They haven't won the SEC title. They haven't won a, a an NCAA title or you know whatever it's called, college football playoff title. Pete, what do you think on Mullen's future? How how big is this this pro interest and and what should he do? Well, I think it's pretty clear that Dan Mullen has NFL interest. I What is not as clear is if the NFL has interest in Dan Mullen. And I think that part of, and I wrote this column uh, a couple weeks ago about Urban, part of like the realities of modern college football are starting to get to some of these guys. Just the name, image, and likeness stuff, the, the roster management, one-time transfer. College football coaching is going to get a lot harder. And 
in, on paper, Dan Mullen really fits the archetype of what NFL owners are looking for. He's a developer of quarterbacks, right? This is my theory on the NFL. There are 32 teams. Eight of them have quarterbacks, maybe nine, ten. The rest of them don't and are looking for them. Those eight teams contend for the Super Bowl. Everybody else is just sort of like, you know, pillow fighting their way to seven and nine or eight and eight or whatever. So a, de a keen developer of quarterbacks and play callers should be attractive. And if you look at Alex Smith, if you look at Dak Prescott, if you look at how Kyle Trask came along, uh, Dan Mullen is as good in the college game as we've seen in the last two decades at developing quarterbacks. The problem with Dan Mullen in the NFL right now is nobody has hurt Dan Mullen's chances to go to the NFL more than Dan Mullen. He just he just has acted immaturely this season in numerous times. There's no other way to say it. That is going to scare billionaire owners if you are going to become the face of their franchise. Yeah. No, that's the thing. Is it? It was a weird report that started with Adam Schefter, uh, where he said that, that he hopes to go to the NFL. And hope is a kind of a soft word to pin a story on. But Schefter also is as plugged in as anybody. So if he hopes it, then that means Mullins people are putting the word out there that, yes, he would like to go. It's an interesting time because he got him to win the SEC East, which they hadn't done in, in a few years. Uh, they got over. They pounded Georgia. Great win right there. That makes everybody very happy. And you win the East. But the number of embarrassments that occurred this year, almost all of which were tied directly to Dan Mullen, left him, yes, as, as P would say, I think, to damage goods to a degree in the eyes of anybody who may want to hire you. Pack the swamp because you're mad because you thought there were too many fans in College Station inciting a brawl at halftime against Missouri. Getting COVID yourself after basically, you know, almost scoffing at the uh, at the virus. And then you go to a bowl game, a, a high-level bowl game against a quality opponent. And yes, a lot of your players opted out, but you just get trucked by Oklahoma. And that's the last time anybody saw you is losing 55 to 20 or whatever it was. Uh, and I think people are looking and saying, that guy, he wants us to pay him like $7 million to make him an NFL coach? Eh, maybe not. Let's see if Dan Mullen can rebound and do a little better next year, just in terms of how you handle yourself. It's just been really weird because, I mean, we've all covered and been around him. He's, a lot, he's an engaging guy. He's a smart guy. Not without ego, that's for sure. But he just has had a weird year. And, he's, you know, I don't know whether it's COVID crazy or what, where it's just his emotions have seemed to have gotten the better of him and his judgment at times. I definitely did. Didn't see the Dan Mullen kind of heel turn, if you will. Yeah, right. yeah I, I, he's kind of a benign guy. Like, yeah. like I don't think people and Sully might know better, like what the SEC feels about Dan. I don't think everyone had like strong Dan Mullen opinions either way. He's a good coach, kind of you know, late stayed below the fray, did a good job. Like I, I, I you know, I'm sure everybody's had their moments. I'm sure Ole Miss fans don't like him or whatever. From uh, when Ole he was Miss there. fans hate him. Yeah, they yeah, hate him. But, but like, that's... of course they're gonna hate him. Yeah, right. <laughs> he beat him a lot. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's uh, that's that. All right, I we do have the national championship coming up uh, next week, but actually, I don't know that you know this, but the national championship has already been decided. Really? Um, if you if you know this, uh, the New York Times, uh, in a story that was sent to us many by many people, alert <laughs> readers, the New York Times has declared that uh, the college football champion is not in the title game, uh, and they have awarded the title to the University of Connecticut for having the courage to not play this season. <laughs> Hang the banner, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine the bonus? Oh, it's going to go bonus. bankrupt. Oh. What is the Edsel bonus on? First off, 
scoff at this all you want, but Alabama would count this as a championship. The New York Times, <laughs> oh, yeah. they, they've taken like weekly newspapers from like, you know, Gadsden, Alabama in 1934 said they were the champs. They got a banner up. So paper of record, the gray lady, that's absolutely hang a banner up there. Um, two, I said you, you England United could do it, and now UConn's lived up to its half. So there's that. I don't want to get into debating this column. If you think this is the absolute stupidest thing you've ever heard, fine. If you don't, fine, whatever. But this story is absolutely classic. Uh, it does not mention Randy Edsel's bonus structure. It's got to be more no. than two grand, right? No. Oh, for, for, oh, for national yeah. championship? Yeah. <laughs> can, There's got to be several million in there somewhere. We should people's court this. Could you could, could you collect on this? <laughs> if I'm his agent, I, I have I I emailed that as soon as that story came out to the AD, to the board of trustees, and the president's like, well, come on, where's the bonus? Let's go. It's uh, you might be able to get that thing to I mean, there's an argument. I'm not gonna say it's a good one. <laughs> none of the none of the other arguments for his bonuses are good, but he got them. We did not might lose as well a game. try. We did not you know? lose a game. <laughs> we said all year, best way not to lose, don't play. That's right. Went undefeated. Um, no. But then the best part of this story is they really took it serious. And they actually talked to Randy Edsel. Which, any, <laughs> I, if I'm Randy Edsel, I'm like, I'm not doing that interview. No. Like, I'm not the national ch- not Not Randy. It was simply the right thing. He makes all this stuff. I never questioned the decision made. Whatever. Fine. But this was the quote that that just, I mean, I could not have enjoyed more. (laughs) Quote, I normally don't sleep well at night during a season, Edsel said. But I slept very, very well all year, end quote. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) you weren't working. Randy Edsel is the leader, the genius for our time. I want to do this. I didn't write a single column all year. Pay me. God, it was a quite relaxing year. It was pretty good. I didn't stress about anything. <laughs> this guy is the smartest coach in college football. He doesn't work and won the national title, according to New York Times. Randy Edsel has found out how to win at life. He absolutely has. <laughs> I mean, the, he's, he has gotten bonuses for leading in the first quarter. He's gotten bonuses for outrushing his opponent. And now he's been named the national championship national champion for not working. It's it's incredible. Uh, yeah, I, I would imagine he doesn't sleep well during the season because his team was getting its brains beaten in every <laughs> single week when they did play. They were terrible since he got back to UConn. And maybe the fact that they have been terrible played into the fact that they didn't play this season. And also... It would have been hard as hell for them to come up with a schedule. So those factors may have been part of why they didn't play, as opposed to this high-minded ideal (laughs) that they were trying to make things safe for the student-athletes that they care deeply about, who don't get any bonuses, by the way. So cynical, Pat. So cynical. Uh, I know. So cynical. I'm a little offended by it. I took a little stroll through the transfer portal. Seven Huskies Mm. actually wanted to play. Uh, since uh, since August and entered the NCAA transfer portal, I'm sure th- I'm sure that New York Times championship will be a really good recruiting lore um, for everybody. Because mock you mass as we do on this podcast, and we do it plenty. Uh, hey. Like like there was at least like a desire by the coaches and the players, and enough by the institution to go out there and get mowed down. What four times? Three, three, three. okay, 
right. Hey, we hung right. we hung ten. We hung ten on Georgia Southern. <laughs> <laughs> and then Who scored on a block two punt. On? Safety. Then you a safety two against somebody. Florida Atlantic. There you go. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, look, the minute men are always ready to fight. That's always. the whole thing. That's our thing. <laughs> We're ready to go. Those Connecticut when, wimps, they're sitting around looking at the damn foliage and going on their little uh, Connecticut shore, you know. <laughs> when the when the when you when New England United showed up for training camp in Holyoke, <laughs> only UMass showed up. UConn yeah. didn't even bother. So. We had to go it alone. We don't mind. No. We don't mind. Wait till the whites of their eyes. <laughs> which which chicken sandwich does New England United give their team in a box <laughs> lunch after the game? Yeah. That's really the podcast question for, friendlies. for the ages. Friendlies. Gotta give it a yeah. yeah some gotta go real local. All right. So I, anyway, that, that's a good call. I, I will laugh at your friendlies joke. Dan, and, somebody's going to laugh for Ben and the four one three will laugh as well. So friendlies, little friendlies, uh, chicken sandwich. All right. Uh, briefly, Jalen Waddle looks like he might play. He's going to practice this week. Is this a decoy? Pat 40. I don't know. I'll wait and see. I'll believe it when I see him actually playing. I guarantee if you're Alabama, you absolutely want to at least present the option that he could play because a he's incredibly good and B if you got another burner to worry about, along with Devontae Smith, that changes your coverage plans pretty significantly about how you divide up the field, I think, when you're covering these guys. Will he actually play? I, I have no idea. And unfortunately, they aren't even going to be in Miami probably till I don't know, Saturday or something. So it's not like anybody's even going to be able to go get your 15 minutes of B-roll and watch the beginning of practice uh, unless you're going to be in Tuscaloosa. So we aren't going to have any idea. We could see him stretch, and that would allow yeah. us to know if he was going to uh, if he's going to end up playing or not. I will say that uh, Eli Drinkwitz in our uh, in the interview coming up did did play Alabama with both Waddle and Smith in very in amusing way, like actually like covered Waddle to sort of force the ball to Smith, who's going to end up winning the Heisman Trophy, which is just kind of like a hilarious notion so that sums up this Alabama. He really went into the X's and O's and coverages and how how the dynamics would change uh, if there is both of them. I would just question, oh, look, Joe Waddle's a freak. He's going to be a top 15 pick. He's, you know, probably the most explosive player in college football. How much of that, do you have right now if you haven't played in months, if you haven't practiced? I'm sure they have underwater cyborg training machines, and he's been able to do the best of any kind of conditioning to come back. But like there's somebody said, we're running around for a couple of weeks to get back in uh, to get back in the groove. So it will uh, that will be a fun little there's always a, a fun little injury subplot. And that is uh, that is our injury subplot for this title game. All right, I want to get briefly to what you just mentioned. Uh, we're taping this on Tuesday morning or, or just at noon, basically. It appears based on all the polling, we have poll, we have like a Nate Silver for, for I think Dennis Dodd is the Nate Silver of of uh, of the Heisman race. He polled the Heisman voters. You two may have secretly voted. I don't know. It looks like Smith will win. My question: I've made my point that I don't know how Trevor Lawrence doesn't win this thing, but I don't want to spend my time bashing anybody. Congratulations on Devontae for winning the Heisman Trophy. Um, but how the heck did a wide receiver? who has four rushing attempts, one punt return, just a wide receiver, win this award in a landslide, apparently, over Trevor Lawrence. It's not like there's bad quarterback candidate. How, how did this no. happen? Can someone tell me how this happened? I don't, I'm dumbfounded that a wide receiver would, be, would win this over quarterback, let alone Trevor freaking Lawrence. Well, I, I will say we and again to stress, we are taping this before the announcement, which is later on Tuesday. I, I you know, maybe he did win. He, he, 
I would say probably he won based on the polling, but I don't. I, we'll see whether it's a landslide. I don't know. Look, I, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say it's undeserving because he's been phenomenal. I think a couple of things here. One, I mean, his numbers are outrageous. I mean, they're really, really good. He is by far, you know, uh, put himself in as the receiver out there. Elijah Moore had a good season, a very good season for Mississippi, but but J- J- Devontae Smith had by far the best receiving season probably anybody's had in a while. Uh, and I'm happy to see somebody other than a quarterback win. Does that mean he should have won? Does that mean he was better than Trevor Lawrence? Not necessarily, but I'm, I'm glad this isn't just a quarterback award at this point. And the thing about watching Devontae Smith is he not only makes the big spectacular plays, you know, the 80-yard catch and run, the punt return touchdowns, those sort of things, but his hands, his route running. You talk to coaches uh, about him, and that's the stuff. Like he's a he's a technician of of the highest order. So, how did he win it? I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm okay with him winning, uh, even if I didn't necessarily vote for him. We'll see. It does sound like Pat may have uh, caved into Dan's peer pressure and, <laughs> uh, and voted for and voted for Trevor Lawrence. Uh, in my vote, which I cannot reveal, I will only reveal that I did not cave into Dan's peer pressure and I dug into the numbers and it was a difficult decision. But in a myopic view of the college, this singular college football season, it's not a career award. It's not an NFL award. Who was the most dominant player? I think there is a very strong argument for Devontae Smith, and I think the the electorate appears to agree with that take. Well, you guys will live in shame for history uh, for that. I mean, Randy Moss didn't even get in the top. He was a finalist. It's, it's just no, it, wide receivers went from not a consideration because they barely touched the ball. I, that That's really more my thing because Devontae Smith's fantastic, but they went from not – they're wide receivers. They're not defensive linemen even. Like they're just not in every play to you're the most outstanding. So a wide receiver hadn't won since 1991, Desmond Howard. Uh, and a lot of Desmond Howard's oomph was kick returns. Like Larry Fitzgerald was up there. Amari Cooper was up there. But this is like if, if, if you're out there, you know, championing wide receiver uh, mankind, this is a big moment for you. <laughs> it is big. It is big. No, Tim Brown won it. But he was Tim awesome. Brown in 87. And then yep. Rogers at. at Nebraska, I think, was Johnny primarily Rogers. a wide receiver, but he also ran the ball a lot. Yeah, and return kicks. Yeah. Now those offenses, yeah, and return kicks. Those those offenses are not the modern offense. Imagine Desmond Howard in the spread offense. Holy crap. Oh my. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's my, I actually have a bumper sticker on my car that says championing wide receivers for mankind. So it's really just, I was <laughs> meant for go. this moment. Good. Good. No, that you know, it's a partisan been just, time. It's a partisan time in America. Uh, John, Johnny Rogers would have been Percy Harvin. Uh, yeah, if, yeah. If in semi-modern times. Yeah, get 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 Johnny Rogers, get Desmond Howard into space. I mean, Desmond Desmond won a Super Bowl. He was a Super Bowl MVP on punt returns. Yeah, yeah. Uh, beat the I Patriots. Mean, she's two two. I mean, he's unbelievable. Anyway, let's get to this. Uh, let's get to this. Uh, Drinkwitz interview. Enjoy. Welcome to a special interview edition of the Yahoo Sports College podcast. We have with us Eli Drinkwitz, head coach of Missouri Tigers. 
to help us break down the title game and uh, yeah, just talk a little uh, talk a little general college football. Eli had the good fortune, although he didn't know it at the time, to hold Alabama to one of their lowest scores of the season. I'm sure when he walked off the field that day in, in Columbia, he knew he'd be doing interviews about how to slow down the tide. I'm sure that was on the top of his uh, on the top of his mind to kick it off. Drink you would add a pregame conversation you told me about with Coach Saban yeah. about the luxurious uh, visiting locker room in Columbia. Do you want to <laughs> you want to walk us through how, uh, how how that went during COVID times? Yeah, so this is this is the best Coach Saban story I got. Well, I really have two Coach Saban stories, but the best one I have is um, so you know we're playing them. We've got COVID. There's all kinds of deals. It's the first away game anybody's got. So you know I. I'm new here. I didn't even look at the visitor's locker room. So I, so I went and looked at it and our visitor locker room is, I wouldn't say it's the most robust locker room in the country. So I'm sitting there going, my gosh, this is, this is coach Saban. This is Alabama. Like I want to put our best foot forward and be a gracious host. So I call him, he doesn't answer and I leave a message. So anyway, this was a, I think it was a Sunday. Maybe it was anyway, he didn't answer. Didn't think anything about it. About three hours later, I get a phone call and it says no caller ID. Well, I'm thinking it's spam. You know, I have no idea. So I just <laughs> answer. The, I just answer the phone. Like nowhere in my mind was I thinking anything other than I have no idea who this is. So I answer it and I say, hello. He's like, hello. And I'm like, can I help you? And he was like, this is coach. And I'm at me. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is coach. <laughs> so I respond to I go. Coach, I had no idea it was you. He says, well, he didn't call me son, but he said, well, coach, if you've been in this league long enough, you'll learn that you need to make sure you have your cell phone. You know, your, your cell phone number is not out there. He said, you play out uh, LSU a couple of times and they'll be prank calling you. And I'm thinking, holy cow. <laughs> so he, if you get a call from a non-caller ID number, it could be Coach Saban. The second thing I'll tell you is, so, I, you know, I go into this spill about the locker room. He goes, coach, I've been in this league, I don't know, 14 years. He said, nobody has ever called me about the visiting locker room. He said, and I'm sure your locker room's going to be fine. He said, because anywhere is going to be better than that piece of Tennessee puts us in. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's uh, that's good. So we will be waiting for uh, for for Pat Forty, our uh, podcast co-host, to uh, to graciously gift upon Missouri his alma mater some money to spruce up the uh, to spruce up the visiting locker room. Yeah, you know, uh, we're, we would actually like to use his money towards our indoor facility, so we're going to redirect those <laughs> funds. Uh, and as hey, Coach Saban said, it's going to be better than, than what we get put in at Tennessee, so I'm good with it. So you just came up here in a sunbelt. What was the worst visiting sunbelt locker room? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> because I got hammered this summer when they said what you – know, I said something about – and I wasn't trying to be a jerk. I, they said, are you going to be – is it going to be weird not playing in front of big crowds? And I was like, well – you know, last year I played in the Sun Belt, and I wasn't taking a shot. I was just being honest. There's there was a few games, but nowadays, if somebody asks me about a small crowd, I'm going to say, "Hey, I've been in crowds with COVID, and there wasn't anybody there." So, yeah, <laughs> but no, I'm not going to take a shot at the Sun okay. Belt like that. Well, we uh, we we brought you out to do a little little X's and O's, uh, yeah, deep dive into the into the title game. You obviously saw a, enough of Alabama uh, up close and personal, studied them a ton. I'm sure you TV scouted the uh, Clemson game like all of us uh, the other night. So at least you saw enough of Ohio State to have just a, a, a general feel. Give me your thoughts, Eli, on on slowing down the tide because I feel like if there's one basic thing that has to happen for Ohio State to win, it has to be some type of slowing of that offense. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing people miss with Alabama is the offensive line. It it all starts there. Now 
I don't know how much they're affected by the loss of their center. I think he was an outstanding player, played a lot of games for him, and obviously in that that's a critical position as far as from communication. But if you watch, Mac Jones plays with a clean jersey all game long. Now, he's really good at sliding away from pressure, knowing when to get rid of the football. But if you go back and study him, you know, I have not seen a bunch of their film this year, but I did see a bunch of their film last year and just, uh, and I've seen a couple of crossover games. The only time he's ever struggled when he gets uh, hit or has to be moved off his spot. And that, and that really is, is the critical component of that game. They're too fast at wide receiver. It doesn't matter if you try to play man or zone. They're going to run through the zone. They're going to run over the top. He's got a, a strong arm. He's got a big arm. He throws with anticipation. You're not going to be able to zone him up. You can't run with him long enough in man-to-man. Coach Sark does an excellent job of creating one-on-one matchups, and whether it's run-through, whether it's rubs, whether it's just routes, it's hard to cover him. So the only shot you have, in my opinion, is to affect the quarterback. Now, what Coach Sark does a really interesting job of is he he really does a great job of play actions and heavy personnels to try to add, we call it 12 personnel, but to add an extra blocker. So you're, you're getting seven-man, eight-man protection, and you're going to get three-man routes with the tailback being the leaker late. So if you try to, what, what linebackers will do is add on. Once they see run, they'll add on, turns into a zero pressure. But now the, the tailback's leaking out late, which you saw against Notre Dame. He was getting the ball early and, and making some extra plays. Again, it goes back to the offensive line, what their ability to protect is. Sark has a unique ability. He gets to call whatever plays he wants because on third down, he knows he's going to be able to, to convert because they're so good. So, again, you have to find a way to affect him. When you look at what where Mac has struggled in the past, you look at Tennessee last year in his first real game action. They were able to hit him a couple of times early. There was a couple of issues in protection. You look at the, the Auburn game. And then you look at this year uh, when Georgia was able to stay in it in the first half, they had gotten pressure on him. Now, they ended up using the same pressure twice on it basically a corner blitz that they they were able to get home early and force an interception and then they used it again later and, and got burned on it they you know Sark does a great job of adjusting but to me that's the matchup if you don't get pressure on them it's an issue defensively they've got elite corners they've got an elite linebacker um, their best D lineman I don't think played against us so I can't really speak on where they're at defensive line wise and how much better they've got that Barmore yes yeah he didn't play I, I would just say this Ohio State's got a few different cats that they're probably they're probably not as worried about those matchups as as, as say we were. So it, it's going to be really interesting that the wide receivers and the quarterback, the way they played against Clemson, that's going to be an unbelievable matchup. Now that's going to be an unbelievable matchup. So I, I can't wait to watch. I don't think it's going to be. I mean, what is this like the largest spread? And that I saw something like that. What, what's that going on there? But it, it's going to be a close game. You know, it's gonna yeah. be it's gonna be a tight game. So you were one of the one of the last coaches to face Alabama with both Waddle and Smith. There was a chance Waddle comes back. I, oh, I don't really? know if he's going to or not. Yeah, that it's sort of they haven't shut the door on it yet. And look, he's still standing on the sideline going to the games as opposed to going off and training for the NFL, where he's going to be a top right. 15 pick. So that's at least dancing out there. How, how much it, it seems silly to ask because you have two top 15 picks, right? But how much how much harder are they and how, how much better does that make Sark in terms of dialing things up when you have if you have both of those threats? 
you know, Waddle Waddle had his best game against us, and I, I I can't remember off the top of my head which one had the the most yardage. But I mean, we had specific coverages where we were going to. I I thought Waddle was extremely good. The most impressive thing about both of those guys was they both played mm-hmm. on special teams, kickoff coverage, and kickoff return, and how much yeah. they contribute on special teams. That's the culture that that Coach Saban's got. It's unbelievable. Uh, but we, you know, we had a. We had a coverage. We got in the red zone. We had a specific coverage where we were going to double 17 and just take it away from him and just say, hey, if, if anybody else gets us, that's fine, but we're not going to let 17 beat us because we thought he was the, the guy that Mac was going to target. We double teamed him. He beat the corner off the line, sprinted away from the safety, threw a perfect pass. If if you've got 17 and six out there, now that's a whole different that's a whole different beast. Uh, I, I mm-hmm. don't know that you can play man because you can't tilt uh, a safety one way or the other. I don't know that you can play zone because they're going to be, like I said earlier, they're going to run through zone and you can't play two man because then they're just going to hand off the, the ball to that unbelievable tailback they got. So <laughs> it, it's pick your poison. I, I don't know. I don't know. I know, you know, Notre Dame tried to go into the game by limiting possession. I, I don't think if you're Ohio state, you're going to want to think that way just because you can't throw your, your own offense out of rhythm. You're going to want to be able to play as fast or as comfortable as you need to. But I'll say this, they hadn't really fallen off since 17 didn't play, so they'll yeah. probably be okay. But it does it, yeah. it creates an interesting dynamic of what you want to do differently for sure. And it's again it's your game poison. plan was forcing the ball to the guy who's gonna win the Heisman trophy. <laughs> yeah, which we didn't do because 17 still beat the I mean, they yeah. both yeah. they both had unbelievable days uh, yeah. against us. But we held the 38, you know. So as uh, as as sports writers, none of us have called the play. Right. Yeah. So we've never we've never sat there with the headset on and, and looked at our sheet and, and dialed it. So both of these teams have weaknesses at safety drink. If there's one place when I talk to NFL scouts, when you watch the Ohio State, Indiana film, there are weaknesses at safety. When you're a play caller and you know safety is a weakness, walk us through some ways you can look at your diner menu and exploit that. It's how do you get your matchups on them? So how do I get the safety in a one on one matchup? Alabama is interesting in that, that if you go so if you go twelve personnel two tight ends and but create a slot formation to the field they don't go corners over most people do which then allows them to they'll either play a nickel apex which is between the tackle and you know off and a safety over the top and it looks like they're providing safety help but in reality you're just creating a safety in a one on one matchup so. To me, it's trying to find that formation that puts their safety without somebody over the top protecting. Because you take all the other 10 pieces off the field, and really it's just a one-on-one, like you're running one-on-ones for days with no jam. You find that formation to do it, and you get it in the slot. Now, you can go empty and try to create, okay, if they are going to play a one-high or if they're going to play man-to-man, where does the safety go? If they're going to play on third downs man-to-man, you go three by one, knowing that the safety has to be the third person covering in a man-to-man situation. Otherwise, you're putting a linebacker on them in a man-to-man situation. They're not going to do that. So to me, that's how you do it. It's finding a formation that you can create a one-on-one. I thought, you know, Bobby Petrino used to do that as good as anybody. And then the other way is to get in, to get into the man-to-man situations and, and create it by saying, okay, who's going to cover the number three receiver? It's got to be the safety. 
this is the matchup we want to create there. That's how you do it. So a little history lesson for us. You're you're a QC at Auburn or whatever they call it, analyst QC, GA. Yeah. You're an alphabet soup, underpaid, overworked, underling, and 10 and 11, correct? 2010, uh-huh. 2011. Yeah. Pretty good years. I'm sure you take credit for, uh, for, for Cam Newton. That was during that time, correct? Well, there was really three new additions to the Auburn staff, uh, to the Auburn team and staff in 2010. Mm-hmm. Michael Dyer, Cam Newton, and Eli Drinkwitz is an offensive analyst. <laughs> Um, yes. And I think all three of us had significant contributions to winning the <laughs> national championship. So you see that era of Nick Saban, the defense first, vanilla offense, essentially metaphorical eye formation, ground and pound type teams. And, you know, like he's looking at the spread and what Gus is doing and thinking it's like hurting the future of football. Right. That That's essentially his attitude. Then <laughs> how, how do you how would you characterize just the paradigm shift that the Alabama program has gone in this last decade, having seen it across the sideline twice back in the early part of the decade and now looking at it then? I mean, we are talking about like in 2010, they had Julio Jones and and, uh, Mark Ingram and Greg McElroy. I mean, they had some darn good pieces. Then in 11, I mean, unbelievable running back and Amari Cooper. And so like, Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here thinking like, I, I don't know. I don't know if they were as dramatically shifted differently as they are now. I I just think maybe there's a uh, more aggression in the play calling. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they still, when coach Kiffin was there, they were a little bit more no huddle. They're still not really no huddle. They're really just a control the tempo. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think more what you see is an aggressive style play calling there. It's not run first, um, Mm -hmm. more, more, it's kind of interesting because w- wasn't it Coach uh, Bielema and Coach Saban that tried to get it yeah. where you couldn't snap the clock at twenty, you know, twenty four yes. seconds and all that stuff. So it's interesting. It was interesting to see. You know, I, I saw the health quote. issue for yeah, the safety I, of the game. I saw this quote, um, and maybe it was fourteen fifteen, where Coach Saban said he had changed his uh, defensive philosophy based on facing some of these no huddle teams. And I don't know if that's caused him to chase, you know, change his overall philosophy, which obviously it has. I think probably mm-hmm. really the addition, I think probably the biggest addition that you see with him is the adoption, the adaption of a, a dual threat quarterback. Now, Mac's not necessarily a dual yeah. threat, but obviously Jalen Hurts and Tua, Tua were both dual threat guys. And when they recruit Bryce Young and maybe adopting some more progressive style plays, like you'll see a, a heavy amount of RPOs with what Sark does. And maybe I think that's probably the more adaptation of what he's doing more than, hey, we're spread no huddle, we're, uh, you know, going as fast as we can type thing. So, so Eli, give us a, give us a pick here, people. Uh, people, you know, you come on the podcast <laughs> to break down the game. Uh, we're you didn't let spot, me break down you know? Ohio State at all. Oh yeah, no, no, you can break it down Ohio State. That's fine. I, it, why, why is Ryan Day such a good play caller? Oh, well, he plays to his quarterback strengths. I think that's obvious. He's very adaptable. I mean, I, you, when you watch what he did to try to offset the play stealing or the signal stealing of Clemson or whatever that whole dynamic was, he did it extremely well. For a guy who had that many pieces out of the game and still put up that many points, he creates formation issues. We call it formation in the boundary. He did that several times to create one-on-ones to the field with the tight end and with the wide receiver and was able to get him over the top. I mean, obviously, you have to have good players to go along with the good play calling, but he, he, he gets his guys to understand this is the why of how we're calling this play or why we're calling this play, and his quarterback's playing at a high level. So, I mean, obviously, that's what it is. 
I, I think, you know, having lived this last year at App State, I don't think he's getting enough credit for how hard it is to take over. People act like, you, oh, you just, you're just going to move into the driver's seat. and It's already set. Man, that's bull crap. It's hard as crap um, because everything you do is magnified. Every change you make, you have to understand the why and you have to be able to explain the why so that people will buy in. That team is obviously incredibly bought into Coach Day. His staff, he's had staff turnover and changes and had to make some difficult changes. And, and uh, you know, he's had two different defensive coordinators in two years and, and has been very successful. So I don't know that he's getting enough credit for what he's had to do and how he's done it. It would be pretty awkward, in my opinion, to have the former head coach sitting up in the stands um, eating popcorn and tweets out after every game the best thing about going six and oh seven you know whatever that that whole deal is so it's like this huge shadow but obviously coach day is so secure in himself and understands who he is that it doesn't bother him he just does his job uh, at an elite level the one area that i that i i don't know this but i i asked this question okay alabama's played is this going to be their 13th or 14th game 12 13 yeah 13 and then this is going to be ohio state seventh Game title game seven with the playoff. I believe they're seven and oh. I wonder how much of an issue it is, not necessarily issue, but how much more and maybe it doesn't matter because it's the last game of the year, but man, that's a lot of extra hits on one team versus the other. And so mm-hmm. to me, I wonder if you don't get into it and say this is going to be one of those physical games where we really try to pound it and see can we, you know, can we make the other mm. one flinch? Can we can we give them body shot, body shot, body shot? Because you are coming back. You know, Alabama played the SEC championship game. They played the week before the SEC championship game, if I remember right. And so they've played a, a stretch of games right here sure. in a row. I just wonder if that 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 figures into this matchup at all. Eight games, a team that's played eight games versus a team that's played thirteen games is a big difference, you know. And so I don't mm. I don't know how that affects uh, the game. So anyway, that, to me, that'll be interesting. And if, if that plays into it at all. So give us uh, give us a pick and then tell us if you'd take Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields in the first week of the draft. I'm not picking this game. Are you kidding me? I'm not right. picking this game. I mean, obviously, yeah, I'm picking. Obviously, I'm picking the SEC. You know, I got yeah, of course. Yeah, I got that's, that's what I thought. It just, it just means more. It just means more. Yeah. That's um, uh, that's yeah. that's for that Notre Dame game was sort of like a buy game in the SEC's eyes, right? Like that was like playing, uh, you know, playing a directional Louisiana, um, you know, in, in in late November. Isn't that what Notre? Isn't that how the SEC looks at them? I, I'm not going to make any comments about the ACC going zero and six in bowl games. Okay, <laughs> I just refuse to do that. <laughs> All right. That is that is very fair. We will uh, we will we will take that comment and dutifully uh, dutifully note it. Um, just, I won't so, I won't comment on them having two teams in the playoffs versus you know I just won't do that. You're not going to get yeah. me. What do you think about Cincinnati taking Georgia right to the end? I mean, it's two good football teams. Like yeah, okay. In bowl games, it's all about matchups, and obviously Cincinnati does a really good job. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Coach Fickle and what they do and obviously the culture he's got bought in. You're talking to a guy who the only reason he's sitting in this job is because he took a group of five team and beat an SEC school and an ACC school at their place. So understanding mm-hmm. those one game matchups, there's a lot of ways to get, you're trying to find a way to win sure. and, and you, there's a lot of different ways to do that. Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence debate, two dynamic quarterbacks. Don't think you're going to go wrong with either one probably depends upon what style of offense you want to create. Uh, at the next level, maybe what you're built for. I mean, I'm not going to go on record one way or the other 
but but I do think both of them are incredibly talented. Uh, I do think you know I, I've been shocked at how good Trevor has been consistently. I mean, when he came in as a freshman, I was at at NC State. I mean, mm-hmm. that dude is legit, and he he makes plays. He's very smart. He understands pressure coverage, can make every throw. Obviously, Justin Fields can do the same thing. I do think Trevor's just got a larger body of work, which is obviously yeah. going to play into the draft. When you're investing the first or second pick, usually more games matter. The more production mm-hmm. matters. I think people look back on you know maybe the, the Trubisky pick and, and say, well, mm-hmm. should we have waited for more games because – they would have picked Deshaun Watson based on how many games he played versus Trubisky on the fewer amount of games. You know, I think people in Houston and Chicago had different varying questions on that. So that's probably going to yeah. play into it. Yeah, and quickly, you've seen Trevor on the hoof. You obviously recruit quarterbacks for a living. Yeah, it's the, you know they're the engine of like. Isn't Trevor? It's hard to describe to people, but when you see him in person, he's kind of a physical marvel. It, it, articulate that you you as someone who's looked at quarterbacks for more than a decade, and you know yeah. you know body type is an important thing. Yeah, he's he's just got presence about him. Like when he walks on the field, he's like Thor from uh, <laughs> you know. I mean, he just he just is. He's got a physical presence to him. He's got a very muscular frame. He's got he's got great hair. Uh, I mean, he's. <laughs> I'll, here's a great story for you. So yeah. when we played uh, in 2018, we were at Clemson. We were both six and zero. Big game. And he was going to start. I, it was he had just made the transition to starting. So I had a true freshman quarterback at the time. It was a scout team quarterback, and so I had him. I bought a wig and had him wear the wig <laughs> out at scout team. Now, Dave, Coach Dorn was pissed, and so was Coach Huxtable. They they thought it was a distraction, but I made him do it, man. And uh, before the game, I actually told. I told uh, Brandon Streeter about it and, and Tony Elliott sure. about it. I said, Hey man, you know, just so you know that, but, uh, anyway, that, that dude's a freak. He's a great player. Uh, great arm, great arm talent, really good player. That had to be an awkward conversation with the GA. So I need you to go to the party <laughs> yeah, store yeah, and get a blonde yeah, wig. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He found it pretty quickly. I don't know what, what that says about him. Hey, here's another interesting fact for you. Yeah. I actually, I think Duke and I were the first at NC State were were like back to back days offering Justin Fields. Uh, in fact, was was man. I, I mean, it obviously didn't matter. He committed to Penn State in the in the summer, yeah. but but man, I really he was a baseballer. Went and watched him play baseball. Yep. Uh, just he's an incredible player, uh, incredible leader. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up our little little Missouri Tiger talk. You obviously yep. uh, went five and five in your in your first season. Uh, great recruiting class, one of the, one of the better ones in school history. Got a lot of buzz going, but of course, we're first going to ask you about your beat writer because we're we're a podcast. Mitchell Forty's the son of Pat Forty, our podcast yeah. co-host. Can you give us a scouting report on how how Mitchell has done uh, covering the Tigers this year? You know, Mitchell's a uh, he's a mid pick press conference question guy. Uh, he never jumps out first. And he kind of always is, he's always a, uh, he always has a follow-up question. He always sneaks in with one. And when your route finishes, you'll always think, can I follow up with that? Um, he's not really a, uh, he's not really a scooper. He's never really mm-hmm. hunting the scoop. He's, he's kind of out just laying the weeds. He'll low hanging fruit. I like to call it. Um, he's a low hanging <laughs> fruit, fruit rider. Uh, no, he does a good job. I always, you know, 
it's interesting how many, how much you get to see of people's lives in these uh, press conferences. Always, he's always in his his uh, apartment, and there's always he's always at his kitchen table when he's asking <laughs> questions. So, yeah, I, interesting for sure. Yeah, he, he's a swimmer. He's probably eating. Don't swimmers eat a lot? <laughs> yeah, like that's yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. So, give us a little state of the union on Missouri, where you are. You've you've now been on campus there. I would say yeah. for twelve months, right? Yeah, it would have been about yeah. uh yeah about about twelve months. Just how how do you feel like things have gone so far? And just it it, it does feel like there is there is a momentum with with Connor's the starting quarterback established yeah. for the future. Just where where you are right now, drink. I think there's a. I think we had the opportunity to lay a solid foundation and get the energy of what we're trying to create going. I think we've seen where we're able to compete with some of the best talent in the country. I think there's hope on you know we're recruiting at a high level and we're going to be able to begin competing with that. But I think there's an understanding that it's it's not a quick fix. Um, and minimum input equals minimum output, and maximum input equals maximum output. I feel like we're finally getting that. You know, we're the we're the only Division One school playing school in the state of Missouri. And so we really have to unite the entire state behind us. And I think we're doing that. Obviously, we just kicked off a, a new indoor facility and, and have raised about 40 indoor. Yeah, we've raised about 20 million dollars in the last three weeks. So I think that shows the investment that we're trying to make. And now it's up to me and our staff and our players to deliver on that, which you know, again, five and five, uh, it was the sixth best record in the SEC. We won some games nobody thought we would win. We obviously had a couple of losses there that we wish we could turn back. I bet if we looked at this podcast, nobody picked Mizzou to have the sixth best record in the SEC going into it out of 14 teams. So we'll keep fighting every day. And uh, I think we're on the right track. I'm excited about our future. Uh, I don't know if I'll be on this podcast next year or the next year uh, when we're playing in that. Uh, playoff, but, but <laughs> you're welcome we'll back see. if you're playing too. By yeah. the way, it is hey, it, it isn't only for her. Yeah, when we're <laughs> playing, I want to be back on here. Yes. Okay, you have open uh, open invitation. Much appreciated. We'll we'll leave you with this. Give us one thing about Missouri football to look at for next year. Like if there's one aspect, something that could be upgraded, some different, an area that's going to be strong. Give us one thing to look for with the Tigers next year. Um, I mean, obviously, we have a returning quarterback who is SEC Freshman of the Year. I think that's going to be. Do do we fall into the sophomore slump or do we progress and grow? And that's going to be my job to make sure that we progress and grow and and really take a, a an elevated approach on offense. All right, very good, Eli Drinkwitz. Thanks for stopping by the Yahoo Sports College Podcast. We appreciate the analysis of both your beat writers and the national title game coming up this week. All right, Pat, you heard it. Uh, good good words on your son. Congratulations on that. Uh, at the nothing wrong with the kitchen table. <laughs> you know what? His apartment's pretty small. Wherever yeah. you sit, you can probably see the kitchen. So yeah. uh, doesn't exactly have office space inside. He's in early twenties. I don't know. Eli might have forgotten what it's like living uh, at that age. Yeah, his, his grad assistant apartment was probably comparable to where Mitchell's living. So the, the, uh, thing, the thing I'll always take it from that interview is trying to picture Dave Doran's face. When the scout team quarterback at NC State comes out with a blonde wig yeah, to yeah. mock Trevor Lawrence, can you imagine Dave Doran's kind of a stiff guy? Can you imagine how pissed Dave Doran was when the scout team quarterback's wearing a blonde wig to mock Trevor Absolutely Lawrence? Fantastic. That's just like that's it. That is an image that I will never. I will think of Dave Doran every time. I'll think how pissed he was with that wig. It was like seemed like a good idea until coach didn't really like it. Yeah, I don't yeah. think you pull that one. 
Uh, anyway, good stuff. Uh, and Pat, shake out the, the, the cushions in the couch and make that donation so we can have the 40 indoor complex. <laughs> I'm on it. That's uh, if I, I'm I'm donating to the uh, to buy a starting block at this at the natatorium for the swim. Okay, team. Right. there you okay. go, there you go. Yeah. All right, now the big news of the week: uh, McDonald's uh, has uh, released its 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 war plan. This is the thing when you're McDonald's, you don't have to sneak up, you don't have to be little, you don't have to make like little snide remarks like Zaxby's. <laughs> you don't have to like hype up like your crinkle cut pickle because you're like churches. <laughs> You just come out and say, this is how we're going to wage this war, and you can't stop us. It's the United States invading Granada. How are we doing it? We're just coming. <laughs> Don't have to hide the playbook. Not at all. They, they will put out the crispy chicken sandwich, just topped with pickles and served on a buttered potato roll. No mayo. No mayo. Come on. Go with all the right. mayo. All right. Now you're talking. Now we're talking. There's also the spicy chicken sandwich, which will have a spicy pepper sauce. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what's involved in that sauce. And then there is probably the, mayo. The, yeah. Probably <laughs> some mayo, mayo base. And then finally the deluxe chicken sandwich, which has lettuce, tomato, and mayo. Okay. Uh, and they're all coming this year. Doesn't sound that deluxe. <laughs> <laughs> McDonald's <laughs> McDonald's version of deluxe is, you know, that's about what you get. Fair, fair point. So, lettuce and tomato. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Really they're, getting out on the edge. There are different levels of deluxe. I, they McDonald's say they have a the juicier chicken sandwich. Uh, they got to do something. Popeyes, I guess, is killing it in the chicken sandwich wars. These sandwiches will look very, very much like Chick fil A's. Mm, okay. So that certainly might scare Chick fil A a little bit. Popeyes has like gotten these huge sales. And now Burger King, everyone's trying to get in on this thing. I mean, it's gone crazy. Mm. We yeah. have oh, enough yeah. chicken. In this country, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> the, honestly, I was thinking of that when we were di first discussing this topic. Is like, how many million chicken breasts does America eat a day? Uh, it, it's it's a scary number. And maybe this is why Harbaugh's heart hasn't been in at Michigan. He just sees America devouring nervous birds, and it's That's just right. really sapped his energy. I mean, it's a nervous bird. You don't want to eat that a nervous bird. bird. He's, yeah. he's opposed to eating chicken. Uh, well, you always got to have a pacifist out there, right? It's like those the monks protesting the war. You know, you got to have those guys. <laughs> I wonder how many people are ordering this fried chicken sandwich going, well, it's white meat. You know, the it's the deep fried and the mayo, uh, the buttered yeah. bun. Yeah, fries and a Diet Coke. You'll be great. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, has, it's, like, anyone, it's like arugula. Yeah. Has anyone partook in the McRib since it came back out? I, I, I'm just going to ask Pat. Never did back when it back before and haven't now because I just don't trust a compressed meat part of Patty that doesn't have bones in it and wants to call itself a McRib. I, uh, <laughs> there's something wrong there. Something suspicious. Uh, we got one. We were intrigued. So yep. a, a lot of sauce, which is also okay. scary. Yeah. <laughs> what What's in there? What is right. this? What is this rib? Rib of what? <laughs> what are they trying to hide with all that sauce yeah very non-committal i don't know why people go so crazy over this i won't say it was the it's basically sauce and bread and onion and there is something mm. in there something. probably just the sausage patties melded together <laughs> i i really feel they only have one type of meat at mcdonald's <laughs> that's right multi-purpose meat <laughs> anyway uh, it is good. It, uh, it's a chick. They, they, they've deemed it in their ads, a uh, chicken sandwich so popular. It decides when it comes out. 
<laughs> McRib nice. with attitude. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, so prepare yourself, America. Chicken sandwich wars are coming. McDonald's is coming, and uh, we'll review it. We'll review it. Don't worry. Yeah. The war we'll, correspondence, we continue on. We'll be there. Uh, we hope you will, too. Be back later this week with a uh, college championship preview pod as the season uh, kicks along. Appreciate everyone listening. Keep subscribing. And uh, look, if you've been listening, don't stop listening in the quote-unquote off-season. Yeah. The crazy crap we talk about never ends. <laughs> the games are fairly irrelevant to our subject matter. Yeah. So someone's going to be doing correspondence yeah. masquerading as college football reporters. Some, so. Someone's going to do someone dirty in this sport uh, every week for the next uh, till the season starts. So don't go anywhere. Talk to you later. <laughs>